to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding The reading of God's word this morning is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 1 through 10. This can be found on page 970 of the Pew Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. The word of our Lord. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go into visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this man caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For then, for when I am weak, then I am strong. The word of our Lord. Thank you, Ben. If you would, please keep your Bibles open so we can refer to the text. And if you don't have one, we encourage you once again, take one of the blue ones in front of you there and turn to page 970. As uh, as I begin this morning, I want to ask you a question. Not a question you have to respond to, but something I'd like you to think about. And I'll admit, it's a bit of a personal question. I'm I'm pressing a bit, uh, meddling a bit, some would say. But I want to ask you this. Right now, what are you praying for? I don't mean right now, right now, but I mean in the last week, as you've taken time to pray, as you've had a quiet moment here and there, 
What does your, your mind wander towards? What are you pleading with the Lord for? What is it you, you desperately want from Him? What are you praying for? What is your mind returning to over and over again? Some of you are even saying, well, I haven't been praying that much. And if so, that's, that's not what I'm after. I just want to know, what, what is it that you earnestly desire from the Lord? What are you praying for? Is it relief from some source, some source of stress in your life? Are you praying for more money and a better job? Are you praying for popularity, respect, recognition for something? Praying to lose those last five pounds or last ten pounds, or you get the idea. Maybe it's not quite that vain. Maybe it's, maybe it's something very spiritual, as a matter of fact. Maybe you're praying for a good future for your kids. Maybe you're praying for more knowledge on how to parent them better, how to rear them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Maybe you're praying for greater personal holiness in your own life. What are you praying for? I, I have a feeling I can guess what you're not praying for. I have a feeling I know what you're not praying for. How many of you out there are asking God for more weakness in your life? Weakness. Who wants more weakness? Anybody? Who's been praying for that one? Who's put that on the top of the list? It was the next thing you were going to say, right? It's number two, maybe more like number ten. It's probably not on the list at all, is it? It's not on my list, I can tell you that. And it's probably not on most of our lists. And the other thing is, it wasn't on Paul's list either. Paul didn't pray for weakness in this passage, did he? Paul asked for something pretty, pretty common. He asked for relief from stress. It's very intense stress. Stress from this thorn in the flesh that we'll talk more about. Paul wanted simple stress relief, but what he got instead was more weakness. He got weakness and strength. At the same time, did I say that right? Yes, I did. He got weakness and strength at the same time. Is that confusing? Is that surprising to some of us? Probably. But I have news for you. It's not the only surprising thing, uh, surprising thing in this text here. As we look at this, uh, in addition to seeing how Paul gets more weakness and more strength at the same time, we'll see three things. We'll see God's cure for Paul's boasting, for his pride. We'll also see God's answer to Paul's pleading. And lastly, we'll see God's power in Paul's weakness. But first, we want to look at God's cure for Paul's boasting, for his pride. It's in verses 1 through 8 there. And I want to say this. We're looking at God's cure for Paul's boasting, but we can just as easily as Paul be prideful as well. We might need some cure, a thorn, or something like that for our boasting as well. Keep that in mind as we talk about Paul's boasting. But Paul says here, twice in verse 7, that because of uh, certain circumstances in his life, he had been too elated. So God did something to keep him from being too elated. Uh, It's a word we don't use that often, but you get the idea as you read the rest of the passage. Even though God hates boasting, and Paul says he hates boasting as well, as he says in chapter 11, verse 30, right before what we read, he says, if I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. In spite of all that, it seems in this passage that that Paul still was a prideful person. There were still circumstances in his life that made him prideful. And even his hatred of that pride couldn't stop it. But the thorn in the flesh could. You see, if you look at verses 6 through 8, he talks about that, about how he's humbled by this thorn in the flesh. And 
All kinds of questions come up. What was this thorn exactly? And, and we'll get there. But really more important is, why was the thorn there in the first place? And you might also be wondering, what's all this talk in verses 1 through 7 about this revelation he has here? Why is he going on about this? Well, it's important at that point to understand Paul's answering some opponents he had. He's answering some critics that he had. And from what we can tell from elsewhere in this, this letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul's opponents were attacking whether Paul was really an apostle or not. They were attacking his credentials. They seem to say, the, the Corinthians, that, Paul, here's what a true apostle is. A true apostle is somebody with an impressive stature, somebody with eloquent speech, somebody with great displays of authority, someone who has revelations and dreams, who performs signs and wonders. That's what an apostle really is. Uh, to borrow a phrase from someone, they were triumphalists. They believed that God loved the best of the best, and if you got it, then you flaunt it, because... That's how you can show that you really have God's favor. And so with this agenda being set before Paul, he sort of answers his critics. He says, okay, fine. You want to you hear my qualifications, so to speak? I'll give them to you. And so he gives the, the barest details, kind of cryptically, about this vision that he's had and refers to it in the third person, you might notice as well. We'll talk about that in a second. But essentially, Paul keeps the details very scant. And I got news for you. If you want all and says, but what I really want to boast about is not all these qualities, but about my weakness. He says that in verse 5. If he will boast, he'll boast only in his weakness. He doesn't pump his own PR campaign any more than he needs to. He quickly, like I said, turns the tables on him. And instead he starts talking about weakness and not all of his massive credentials. And even as he boasts, he does so kind of sarcastically, using, like I said, the third person to distinguish between the Paul who once had this great vision and the Paul who's writing now, who's been humbled since that great vision that he once had. You know, Paul is a changed man as he's talking about this, changed from what he once was when he got this vision. Any boasting he's going to do is only done because he's been baited by the Corinthians. You see some of this in chapter 10, verse 1. If you flip back, he refers to himself as, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. That's almost like he's sarcastically quoting the criticism he had received. Um, you might wonder, why such sarcasm from Paul? <laughs> it's because he knows the true foolishness of doing this, of boasting, of self-promotion. Because as he reveals in here, he once was a man who struggled with pride, who struggled with this idea of self-promotion. He, he had this revelation, and because of that, he appeared to become very prideful about what God had shown him. The thing is, I wonder if he realized how prideful he was before this thorn in the flesh came into his life. Uh, William Hendrickson says this, he says, pride slips surreptitiously, that's a 25 cent word for secretly or stealthily. Some pride slips surreptitiously into the human soul and rules in such a manner that a person is often unaware of its presence. It seemed to be the case for Paul. He couldn't see it, but God saw it. God had a solution for it. God gave him this thorn to humble him. That thorn, it's an interesting word. It only occurs once in the New Testament. You're probably wondering, what was it? Was it a literal thorn, a really big splinter? 
And I'll, I'll say this much in summary, that it was, it's probably an intentionally vague phrase from Paul. Uh, we know it was bad, but we don't know a lot of the specifics. It's probably a physical malady of some kind, because he refers to it as a thorn in the flesh, but I have to admit, even that's a guess. There are plenty of other guesses out there, probably a dozen or so scholars try to take a crack at it, but all of them seem to have holes in their theories. And I kind of wonder if maybe that's because God doesn't want us to obsess about what the thorn was so much as what the result of the thorn was. The few specifics we do know is that what Paul says about it in verse 7, it was a messenger from Satan. You know, just as God allowed Satan to harass, to persecute Job, his servant, within certain limits that God set. It appears that God allowed Satan to harass Paul as well. Satan had his agenda. It says here he wanted to to beat him, to harass him, to buffet him, depending on which translation you have. But God will have none of that. What he wants ultimately is Paul's humility. He wants Paul to not be too elated about what he has seen and heard. So that is the result. It humbles Paul. It keeps him from being too full of himself. But it appears that this is, this is not just a stern talking to. This is something intense. This is something ongoing. It seems that Paul was particularly in pain because of this. Spiritually, emotionally, physically. We, we don't know the extent of it. But Paul pleads three times for this thing to go away, whatever it was. And keep in mind, Paul is no wimp. Go back up to chapter 11, verses 23 to 25. He talks about beatings, imprisonments, stonings, getting the 40 lashes minus one. Paul was somebody who was accustomed with pain. So this must have been some serious trial he was under. And so he pleads three times for it to go away. And I think that should tell us, by the way, as we see Paul pleading here, I asked you earlier what you were praying for. It's not necessarily a bad thing if you're praying for stressful things in your life to go away. But it's important to notice, and we'll talk about this more as we go on, that it may or may not be God's will for those things to go away in your life. And so still at the end of this, we see Paul has this thorn. He's humbled by the thorn. This is God's cure for Paul's pride. But why? Why this thorn? Why does it stay there? Why are there troubles in your life? metaphorical thorns, if you will, in your life and in mine. Well, maybe it's as simple as what Paul says here. Maybe God needs to humble you. Some of you are not taking much comfort in that. Some of you are even saying, well, I've been humbled a good bit by the trials in my life, Matt. Maybe it's, you sure it's not something else? Maybe it's that he wants you to seek him more earnestly for relief from whatever that trial is. Some of you are still saying, I've already sought him. What else, what else is it? The only thing I can say is maybe you need to listen as well to the answer to Paul's pleading. We looked at God's cure for Paul's boasting. We also want to look at God's answer to Paul's pleading in verses 8 and 9 here. And I want to say this. God's answer to Paul, a bit of a harsh answer some would say, God's, God doesn't answer every prayer like this. But he has the right to answer every prayer like this. We know, of course, that he does work all things together for good. So it's not as if he is just waiting to say no to us or anything like that. But we know that he has the right to answer prayers like this. As I said, he does work all things together for good. And as John Calvin said in reference to this passage, if relief had been for Paul's ultimate advantage, 
he would have never been met with a refusal. So keep that in mind. God had a reason for his answer here. As Paul pleads three times with him, as we said earlier, it's kind of interesting. Jesus pleaded three times with God to take something away from him as well in the garden before he went to the cross. But of course, we know that that neither of these prayers were ultimately answered the way they wanted. And in Jesus' case, he said, but not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. And you know, Paul gets a similar answer. Paul doesn't get what he wants. The answer Paul gets is this, sufficient. It's the first word in the original language there. Sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. It's a curious word. We're going to talk about it in a minute. But the bottom line is for Paul, there's no relief, just grace to bear with the trial. No relief, at least not yet. And it's interesting because it almost seems like there won't be relief. The the simple phrase, but he said to me, in the original language, the word said is in the perfect tense. Now, why does that matter? Because the perfect tense implies a a one-time definite event that has ongoing effects. In other words, it's as if this is God's final answer. He has spoken once and he's not going to answer again. Or if he does, it's going to be the same answer. He has spoken to Paul on this matter. And he said, my grace is sufficient, Paul. It's not going to go away. But I will give you grace that's sufficient to deal with this trial. His answer's final. Paul's request is, in effect, refused. Some of us are puzzled by that. We say, why would God do this? Why would he say say no so harshly with such finality? Um, Why would he do that? To quote uh, the theologian Garth Brooks, thank you, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And we mean unanswered, of course, in the sense that not answered like we wanted. Of course, God always hears. He always answers. But that doesn't mean it will be exactly like we wanted. You might be puzzled by that. You'll be saying to yourself, doesn't the Bible say, ask, seek, and knock? And indeed it does. But take notice of 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. If you turn there, what God doesn't say is, if we ask anything at all, we automatically get it. That's not what he says. He says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears. Then we have confidence that we will have it. The promise holds true for anything we ask according to God's will. What about those things we ask that aren't according to his will? Can we still be assured that God is seeking our good, even if it's not on our exact terms? Of course it is. Once again, he works all things together. Even somewhat abrupt, somewhat harsh-seeming answers to our prayers. We know that God works those things together. But, but why doesn't he do it on our exact terms? Because he's God and he has spoken and he's said, my grace is sufficient. And he says elsewhere as well that he can and he will supply all our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And it's important to notice in that verse, Philippians 4.19, he talks about meeting all of our needs. Not our wants, but our needs. Important distinction that's not shouldn't be lost on us, and it's uh, it's not merely something that parents say to kids. It's something God says to His children as well. See, God says that His grace is sufficient, and in essence, that means that not every wish will always be granted the way we want it. It's 
Once again, that's curious, isn't it? He says our grace is sufficient. Sufficient. That's, isn't grace glorious? Don't we sing about amazing grace? Don't we hold dear the doctrines of grace? Grace at times certainly seems to be more than just sufficient, more than just kind of getting the job done, right? More than just the, the bare minimum. Sufficient isn't exactly a high and lofty word. I mean, has anybody here lately uh, told their wife that dinner was sufficient the other night? Anybody try that one out? How'd that go? Probably not well. Sufficient, just getting the job done. That's, like I said, it's not a high and lofty word. So why does God use that to describe His grace? Because sufficiency implies this. It says, it implies that God saves us completely. He guarantees your eternal destiny. But it does not wipe away every tear right now. Not yet. He will one day, we know. But maybe not yet. There might be struggles that continue. We know as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit now. We have the, the down payment of our internal, excuse me, eternal inheritance, as it says in Ephesians 1. But the down payment is a whole lot different than the whole shebang now, isn't it? Anybody who's ever bought a house knows that. Sufficiency implies that there are some burdens we'll have to bear for a while longer. It implies that every desire is not fulfilled here on earth. Every wish is not granted right now. Sufficient grace means, I know where I'll spend eternity. But sufficient grace doesn't promise that the mortgage will get paid off. It doesn't promise that all my kids will graduate from college or even go to college. It doesn't promise that we'll get all we think we deserve. It doesn't promise that all my prayers will be answered with a yes. But it is sufficient. Sufficient for what? Sufficient for the miracle of saving dead sinners like you and me. And sufficient to finish what God started. The same word is used but translated a little bit differently in John 14.8. There Philip is talking to Jesus and he says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Enough. That's the word. Enough. In other words, we'll be content with that. That's the idea behind God's sufficient grace in the midst of Paul's struggles and in the midst of ours. He won't take away every thorn. He won't wipe away every tear right now. But He will one day. And in between, there is more than enough sufficient grace, more than enough comfort to remind us of the final reward, the final payoff. And until then, there's weakness that remains. In me, in you, in Paul. But that weakness has a purpose. Oh yeah, we've looked at God's cure for Paul's boasting. We've looked at God's answer to Paul's pleading. And now we want to look at God's power and Paul's weakness in verses 9 and 10. And is this not how Christ is best seen? As a help to the helpless. As strength for those who are spent. Strength for the weak. Paul is okay in these verses with God's sufficient grace. And why? Because God's power is made perfect in weakness. William Hendrickson says this, Not Paul, but Jesus receives praise and adoration, for divine power is brilliantly displayed when human weakness is noticeably evident. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about this whole idea that God's power is made perfect in weakness. 
Does that mean that God's power is, is lacking, is incomplete in the lives of the strong and the mighty? Does that mean that he doesn't work in the lives of the strong and the mighty? I don't think so. I think this is what it means. I think what it means is this. In the, long, in, in the lives of the strong and the powerful, the movers and shakers here on earth, it's not as if God is not working. It's not as if he's not moving powerfully in their lives. But the temptation is this. The temptation is to see the, the movers and shakers, the strong and the mighty. The temptation is to see their strength. The temptation is to think that they are what has got them there. And that they are the one that determines their destiny. It's not true, but it's a temptation for all of us, right? To think if we just tried a little harder, if we just studied harder, if we just put in more hours, we'd be just like them, right? The temptation is to see the power of the strong person, not the power of the Savior. But in the lives of the weak, when God works in the lives of the weak and the helpless, there's no mistaking God's power there. When you look at the story of the Red Sea and how it parted for the Israelites, does anybody think that it's because of what the Israelites did when they were helpless, when they were trapped? When you read the Psalms, do you get the idea that the psalmist lifted himself up out of the pit, out of the miry clay? When you look at Paul's life, say Philippians 3, do you get the idea that Paul's imperfect righteousness saved him? Or do you get the idea that Paul was found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own, but that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ? Do you get the idea that the bankrupt man paid off all his debts? Or do you get the idea that Christ, who was rich but for our sake became poor, paid off his debts and more? As for us, can I, can you, can we take credit for any of our righteousness? The righteousness that Isaiah talks about is filthy rags? Or shall I instead give credit to God, the God who lifts up the weak, the God who saves the ungodly, the unrighteous? Shall I instead confess my own sin, my own weakness, so that God's glorious grace might shine forth? I ask you this, what did Paul do? You know, as I was thinking about this, I thought there, there are many non-Christians who would say that when they look at the lives of Christians, what they see are puffed up, prideful people who are proud of their superior morality. And you might be thinking for a minute, well, they've just got the wrong idea. That's not exactly what I'm after here. If I'm not so concerned about their perception as I am, what picture we put forth. And what I'm not trying to say in the midst of this is that we should stop striving for holy lives and morality. Of course we should. But the picture we need to hold forth to a watching world to a world that's lost and in need of Christ, is not people who have it all together. What they need to see in us is weaklings who are being dragged into the path of holiness by God's grace. They don't need to see people who are puffed up about their strengths, people that are proud of being good individuals, people that are proud of being part of a good church with good doctrine and part of a good denomination. All those are good things, of course. But what we need to show them is the fruit of that good doctrine. We need to show them that when we look at ourselves, we see weak people, people who are weak like them. And also that we have a rallying cry for the weak, that we know that God loves those who let his power be
be made perfect in their weakness. We should boast in that and not in ourselves, not in any superior advantages or accomplishments we have. You know, Paul normally, like I said, hates that whole idea of boasting. But now that he's seen this, now that he's seen Christ's power being made perfect in his weakness, what does he say? He'll all the more gladly boast in his weakness. He goes on to list them all, doesn't he? Because what happens when, when he boasts in his weakness, the power of Christ rests upon him. And that word rests upon him. It's the idea that you see in John 1.1, that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. What he really is saying that when he boasts in his weakness, the power of Christ tabernacles upon him. It pitches his tent over him. And when he does that, the world sees the power of Christ. They behold his glory in the lives of weak men and women. It's the same idea once again as John 1, that God is present with his people. In the same way that he was in the tabernacle, the great tent of meeting in the Old Testament, he's present with them in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's present with them all of his hindrances, because all these things combine to show his need of Christ. And whenever that happens, Christ's saving power gloriously shines forth. God's power shines in Paul's weakness. It's not a paradox, at least not ultimately. might be confusing, might not make sense. What Paul is saying is that when I'm weak, God shines forth. When I try to be strong, I'm clouding the power of Christ. I'm veiling it. When I show forth all of my weakness, when I show forth my great need of Christ, that's when the power of Christ shines forth most gloriously. Our weakness, Christ's strength, that's what should shine forth in our lives. That should be our theme song, if you will. As I was thinking of this this week, there was a song that played over and over in my head. You've heard it. We've sung it pretty frequently. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Last part's what stuck with me. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Is redeeming love your theme song? Do you want it to be your theme song? Because in one sense, it sounds sentimental and sweet. Redeeming love has been my theme. But what does redeeming love, what does that imply? Redeeming love implies that I needed to be redeemed. It implies that I couldn't redeem myself. Someone else had to pay for my redemption. Because I was once rebellious. I was once sinful. I was once evil. I was once lost, dead in my sins. But redeeming love says something else as well, doesn't it? It says I can be weak. I can fall short. I can be incomplete on my own and still be loved by the king of all the universe. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. If you know that you're weak in the way Paul talks about here, that's good news. And it's also good news if you're someone who's trying to be strong, who's, who's trying to show forth your own strength, but you're barely holding on and you can sense it. If you're trying to be strong, but you want to stop already, and if you want to let your guard down and stop the charade of strength and spirituality and let people see what you know is really the truth, 
that I'm weak, that I need help. If that's you, then there's good news. God wants to use you. God wants to use you as a a canvas, as it were, as as a projection screen so that he can display his perfect power in your weakness. You might be saying to yourself, but but what if I'm really weak? I mean, you don't understand. I mean, you're talking about weakness like it's it's a simple equation here. Even if you're weak, God makes you strong. What if you're really weak? I want you to look at what Paul does when he ponders God's strength and his weakness here. He says, "All, all the more gladly talk about my weakness. The more Paul talks about his weakness, the more strength he finds. He starts out just talking about weakness in the abstract. And then he goes on and says, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, anything that makes me weak. I'll gladly talk about it. Because when I do, that's when I find that I'm truly strong. Strong by the power of Christ that perfects him. I thought about this right before I got up here. There's a quote from an old football coach. He was known to say, tough men last longer than hard times. It's a good little pithy quote. But you know, how much more so is that true for tough men who are made tough not on their own, not because they grit their teeth and fight through another tackle, not because they pretend that the problems of life don't bother them. How much more so is it true for men who are toughened by the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. What Christ wants to tell you in the midst of this passage is that Christ wants you to bring your weakness to Him. There is no weakness so weak that He can't perfect it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your strength. Father, we thank You for Your Son who was strong and who... Father, went to the cross, who kept his strength in reserve as it was, and took the wrath of God poured out upon him. Father, we thank you that he became weak, in a sense, so that that power might be manifested to us, so that that power might dwell in the lives of those who trust in him. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his strength. And we pray that you would let us not be ashamed of our weaknesses, so that we could show forth the power of Christ in our lives. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?